0: Our scripture again this morning is from Nehemiah chapter 12, and we'll be looking in more detail in verses 27 through 30. Last time I spoke, we were reminded that when the first group of Jews returned from captivity in 537 BC, their first priority was to rebuild the temple. But this second temple did not compare with Solomon's temple. But it was the temple that God had led them and sent them to build. We saw from Haggai's prophecy that God promised Zerubbabel that there would be a future temple that would be even more glorious than Solomon's temple. And so we saw in the New Testament scriptures that the body of Christ is the temple today. While the Spirit indwells every single believer The church as a whole, cooperatively or corporately, I should say, is the temple of God, the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are living stones that collectively make up the temple or the household of God. And we are believer priests offering sacrifices of praise to God. We need to understand that imagery and what it means Just as the temple took precedence in the life of those returning Jews, the temple, the church, should take precedence in our lives as well. We must love one another, care for one another, be willing to sacrifice for one another, and never do anything to harm God's temple. If we harm even one stone, we're harming the temple of the living God. And I've got to take this opportunity this morning to add to this point because I didn't get there last week or two weeks ago, actually. There's another teaching that relates to this. It comes from 1 Peter chapter 2 that we looked at briefly last time. Verse 4 tells us, and coming to him as a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. So in verse four, Jesus is a living stone. It's a stone that's been rejected by men, but that stone is precious. It's chosen in the sight of God. In verses six and six through eight, actually, Peter builds on verse four and he quotes from Isaiah 28:16, proclaiming Christ as not just a living stone, but as a chosen or the chosen stone, a precious cornerstone. What is a cornerstone? What does that mean that Christ is our cornerstone? Well, a cornerstone was the principal stone. It was placed at the corner of an edifice to guide the workers in their course. Once it was set, it became the basis for determining every measurement in the remaining construction. Every single thing, every stone was aligned to it. Folks, Jesus is our cornerstone. He determines our size, the size of the temple, the church, the shape, the alignment of this new temple. He determines the stones and the number of stones that make up this new covenant temple. So he picks, he chooses, he elects each stone and gives them life. And he's the measurement. Of righteousness. We are righteous because he is righteous. Remember what Jesus told the Pharisees? For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. These were considered the most righteous people of that day in the eyes of the people, but they were not righteous before God. We must have the righteousness. Jesus Christ. He is our standard. And then Peter goes on in verse 6, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed, will not be let down. It means that person that believes on Christ will not have their hopes dashed. Their confidence is not or has not been deceived. God is faithful to bring ultimate and complete satisfaction to those who believe in him. Peter goes on to declare Jesus as the cornerstone which the builders rejected in verse 7. Remember the words of John, he came to his own and his own did not receive him. Jesus did not fit the preconceived ideas of who the Messiah would be, not to the Jewish people. They were looking for a Messiah that would deliver them from Rome. They were looking for a political Savior. They were not looking for a suffering servant, a spiritual Savior that would save them from their sins. So Peter calls Christ a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense in verse 8. He was the stone that they the small stone, a stumbling stone that they tripped over. But he was also a massive rock. He was that boulder that crushed them in judgment, and they were crushed in judgment. It happened when the Roman emperor Titus seized the city of Jerusalem and eventually destroyed it in 70 A.D., in Matthew 21, 44, Jesus had prophesied that this would happen and that the kingdom would be given to another. Folks, Jesus is a living stone. He's the cornerstone rejected by his own people, but he is precious to those who believe. I could not help but bring that up. I was thinking about the fact this week that our name The name of our church is Cornerstone. By our name, we are proclaiming to the world that Christ is our foundation, our standard, our measurement. Just as a Cornerstone determined the measurements and alignment of an edifice or even the Old Testament temple, Christ determines the measurement and alignment of the church. We should seek with all our hearts to align our church with him. We're sort of getting a fresh start right now. As you know, what a more important time to evaluate each of our own selves that we would be in line with the cornerstone. We need to be careful only to accept living stones into our fellowship, seeking to live righteous lives as he is righteous, seeking obedience to Christ as our cornerstone, as the head of the church. If Christ is not our cornerstone, then we are not the temple of God. May we be the temple of the living God at Cornerstone Church, where Yahweh is worshiped, where he's reverenced and obeyed. Last week, we also briefly looked at the dedication of the wall, the wall that the Jews had completed in just 52 days. Even with opposition and hardships, they persevered with the help of God and they accomplished the task that God had given them to do. We also saw the dedication of the wall and the gates to God. And we mentioned that the wall was significant. It provided protection and security to the city of Jerusalem, the city of God, because this is where the name of Yahweh was known. It's where God's law was kept, where God's testimony dwelt, and where Yahweh was worshipped and feared. We were reminded that while the worship, music, and the dedication was not like that in Persia, likely not like that in Persia, this was a time of celebration, of gladness, and thanksgiving. So it does not matter necessarily how professional or elaborate our music is. Certainly, we want to do things to glorify God but it matters that worship originates from one's heart and our heart's desire should be to worship and glorify God and God alone. We also discover that the priests worship the Lord through temple service, two weeks, just two weeks per year, 50 weeks each year they provided for, cared for and taught their own families. So let's read once again, Nehemiah chapter 12, Verse 27 through 30. Now at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought out the Levites from all their places to bring them to Jerusalem so that they might celebrate the dedication with gladness, with hymns of thanksgiving, and with songs to the accompaniment of cymbals, harps, and lyres. So the sons of the singers were assembled from the district around Jerusalem and from the villages of the Nataphatites from Beth Gilgal and from their fields to Geba and Azavoth. For the singers had built themselves villages around Jerusalem. Now notice verse 30, the last of that paragraph basically in the text. Verse 30 reads, The priest... And the Levites purified themselves. They also purified the people, the gates, and the wall. There's a principle here. We must be pure to worship God, to come into his presence. Why? Why is this so important? Because God is holy. Remember when Isaiah came face to face with God in his temple, seeing God in his perfect holiness and hearing the seraphim cry to one another saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Isaiah chapter 6. This threefold repetition of God's holiness points to God's complete separation from his falling creation. It's called the trihagion. And that word means thrice holy. This trihagion points to the holiness of the triune God. You know, God's holiness is one of the attributes of God that we in no way can relate to. We might be able to relate In a limited way to some of his attributes in our fallen state. But apart from his imputation of holiness, his changing our hearts by the Spirit of God, we are anything but holy. God is perfectly holy and we are not. God's holiness means that God is without moral blemish. He is not tainted by the sins of men or of fallen angels. God is perfectly pure. He's holy. He's set apart from sin and everything that's sinful. But God's holiness is also what makes him separate and distinct from everything else. So God's holiness is more than just his perfection or sinless purity. It's been said it's the essence of his otherness. It's his transcendence, his superior excellence. One definition states holiness this way God's holiness embodies the mystery of his awesomeness and causes us to gaze and wonder at him as we begin to comprehend just a little of his majesty. God is holy in his purity and holy and transcendence. But it's when I get a vision of God's holiness that my true condition is revealed. The same was true with Isaiah. When Isaiah saw God in his holiness, it brought him face to face with his own sinful state. Remember his words, "'Woe is me, for I'm ruined.'" for i am a man of unclean lips and i live amongst the people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the king the lord of hosts folks it's only when we get a glimpse of god in his holiness that we're able to understand our lack of holiness our depravity and sinful condition to understand our own need of god's righteousness You see, it's a matter of Scripture, of God's truth. We are unable to come before God's presence in our sinful, depraved condition. The Scriptures are very clear. The psalmist declared, If I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. Psalm 66, 18. In light of the coming of the suffering servant, Isaiah pleads with Israel to forsake their sins in chapter 59. And in the first two verses, Isaiah states, Behold, the Lord's hand is not short that it cannot save, nor his ear dull that it cannot hear. Verse 2, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. The problem is not with God or his ability. Isaiah points it out very clearly. The problem is with man. It's man's sin that separates from us from God. This is found throughout scripture. Sin causes separation. Remember Adam and Eve eating? from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and God saying in the day that you eat thereof, you will surely die. Have you ever really contemplated or meditated on the concept, the meaning and the consequences of death? Death always results in separation. The very moment, the instant that Adam and Eve ate from that tree, they died spiritually. It meant separation from God's favor. It was the death of a relationship. And because of their sin, every descendant of Adam and Eve that's ever lived is born dead to God at enmity with God. We also know that Adam and Eve's sin would eventually result in their physical death, that separation from our physical bodies. Death of our body. And every descendant of Adam and Eve, apart from the resurrection or apart from the Lord's coming, I should say, will die physically, every single one of us. But in Scripture, we also find another kind of death. It's called eternal death. And every person who dies physically yet in their sins experiences eternal death. This is separation from God's goodness forever, and it's the death of any hope. No hope left. It's separation from God's grace and His mercy and everything that, that's good that proceeds from God in a place called hell. You know, sadly, there's nothing that we can do to prevent spiritual or eternal death. We are helpless to save ourselves. We are helpless to turn to God of our own accord, by our own efforts. If any man is to be saved, it must be an act of a merciful God. And praise God, nearly 2,000 years ago, the Lord Jesus Christ came to this earth, lived a perfectly holy, righteous life in our place, and then died in our place, taking our sins, the sins of everyone that would ever believe upon himself, so that we would not have to be eternally separated from a holy God. So death in and of itself is separation, ultimately eternal separation from God's grace Mercy, love, and goodness, but it's not separation from God's righteous judgment. It was because of this principle, this truth, that Israel needed cleansing because we are a sinful people. They had to be cleansed, just or not just the priests and the Levites, but all the people. This cleansing emphasized the importance of being holy before God. It also looked ahead to a clean cleansing that's still future. It pictured a cleansing that we possess today through faith in Jesus Christ. You see, no one, not you nor I, can worship God without cleansing No one can worship God that is stained by sin. So this cleansing points, first of all, to the cleansing of salvation. We call it justification. Paul wrote to Titus, referring to our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession zealous for good works. So this cleansing first involves a removal of our sins in the eyes of God. In Colossians 2 the apostle Paul proclaims Christ as the one in whom dwells all the fullness of the godhead bodily as the head of all principalities and powers, as circumcising those outside the covenant, speaking of Gentiles, with a circumcision, a cleansing made without hands, as burying us through baptism and raising us from spiritual death, as quickening us, quickening we who are dead in our sins, giving us life eternal. And then in verse 14, Paul writes to the Colossians, having blotted out the handwritten legal decrees, which was opposed to us, and it he has lifted out of the way, nailing it, to the cross. Basically, because of our sins, we have a certificate of debt that we cannot pay ourselves. We cannot erase it. We are accountable for our sins. They are our personal debt that we owe to God because we have all broken God's law. We have all fallen short of God's glorious standard. But Jesus Christ in his grace and mercy did for the elect, for those who would believe. He did what we could not do for ourselves. But he did not just wipe our sins away, erasing them. He actually paid for our sins by shedding his own precious blood, the blood of the Son of God, God in human flesh that was without sin. John said in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the whole world, not just for the Jews, but for all that come to him in faith from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Don't you like that word, propitiation? One of the most beautiful words in the English language, I believe. Halasmos in the Greek. It means an appeasement, appeasement or satisfaction. It's the idea to atone, to cover, or to wipe clean. Not only is Jesus our divine defense attorney, Stated in the previous verse, 1 John 2, 1, he is the very appeasement for our sins. He paid for the sins of all who love his appearing, who believe in his name. It is this cleansing of salvation that brings us into the family of God. It's a cleansing for all of our sins, not just our past sins, but for all of our sins, even in our believing lives, the sacrifice of Christ pays for all of our sins. If it did not, no one has any hope. And this forgiveness, this payment for our sins through faith brings us into a relationship with God as our loving Heavenly Father. When we are truly adopted Into God's family. We are not excommunicated from the family even when we slip and fall, even when we sin. But when we sin, our fellowship is broken. So there's a continual cleansing that we need as well. Not in relation to justification, when we come to faith in Jesus Christ by his grace by his power, that's dealt with. But we need a continual cleansing in our walk. Just like with your children. If your children disobeys, you don't put him or her out of the family. I hope not. It might break fellowship. Things might not be quite right, but it don't break relationship. They're still your child. You still love them. You still want what's best for them. John also said in chapter one, verse nine, if we confess our sins, plural, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. While the forgiveness here is in the aorist tense, it's a one-time effective action in the past. It happens the moment we believe. The Confession here is in the present tense. It's a a continual, ongoing action in the present. So those whom God has forgiven are those that continually confess their sins. It's actually an evidence of being believers. Just trying to remain pure in our walk before him. We know from scriptures that believers do. They can and do sin. However, it does not affect our relationship with God. We're still His children. It only affects our fellowship on a temporary basis. So this is the cleansing, I believe, that we see in Nehemiah, at least the principles found there. At the dedication of the wall in verse 30, the priests and the Levites purified themselves. They also purified the people, the gates and the walls. It pointed to the cleansing that we need. Now, those here who believed in God were just like Abraham. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him for righteous. So they had imputed righteousness already. It was based on the work of the coming Messiah. But they still needed a daily cleansing. They needed the impurities of daily life taken away. Remember what Jesus said to Simon Peter when Jesus was washing the disciples' feet in John 13? Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. But notice what Jesus said. He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are not clean and you are clean, excuse me, but not all of you. And he's speaking there of Judas. When we face trials in this life, we're reminded of walking close to our Savior. We're reminded of how important that is. Our lives are to be lives of worship. We do not have some wall or physical temple that needs to be dedicated to the Lord, but we should commit ourselves individually and our church, the temple of God to the Lord. And that begins with purification. It begins with cleansing. Because of this coronavirus, we're in uncertain times. You know, four weeks ago, I don't know about you, but I would have not believed where we would be at today, how things have changed. And even now, we don't know what the future holds. We've got hopes. We're praying to a particular end, but we don't know what the future holds. But listen to the statement. We don't know what the future holds, but we know the one that holds the future in his hands. And that's all that matters. If we know him, folks, if Jesus is our cornerstone, both Individually and certainly as a church, that's the teaching in the New Testament. We can face any struggle. We can face difficulties. Many, many believers throughout church history have faced death and stood tall by God's power, even in the face of death, because their hope was in Christ the living stone, the one that gives life, that gives us hope, that purifies us. So may today, because of the purity that we have in Jesus Christ, that imputed righteousness, may we cleanse ourselves from the everyday struggles, the failures, the sins, the stresses, the temptation to worry. May we cleanse ourselves from every impurity and dedicate ourselves, our futures, to the one that holds the future in his hand. Folks, Jesus is the cornerstone. He's our foundation. He is our confidence. And no matter what the world brings our way, he is our hope. Let's go, Lord in a word of prayer. Father, thank you, God. Thank you for who you are. Lord, you indeed are holy and righteous, and we have none of that apart from you. But God, by your grace, because you're that living stone, the cornerstone that sets the measurements alignment of the church. You have brought us into your temple, the temple of God. You have taken hearts of stone and made them hearts of flesh. You have made us living stones that make up your temple. And may your temple be to your praise and to your glory. May we at Cornerstone Church Be a temple where you are worshipped and you are exalted and God's lives are changed. People are saved and discipled and come into an intimate walk with you. May we be holy before you. May the world see Cornerstone Church as a place where Yahweh dwells by your spirit. Lord, Lord, be with us in these coming days. Give us wisdom. Give us strength. Help us to trust you, the one that holds the future in your hands. And we will give you the praise for all that you do, God, and all that you are. In Jesus' name, amen.